Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever heard of the martyrdom argument for the resurrection of Jesus? It goes something like this. Jesus' apostles faced persecution and martyrdom for their confession that God raised Jesus from the dead, sealing their witness with their blood. Why would they die for a lie? Their martyrdom unequivocally proves that they sincerely believed in Christ's resurrection. Since they were in a position to know if it was true or not, we have every reason to trust their testimony. All right, so whether you've heard that argument or not, it is a popular apologetics argument that lots of people use. I've used it myself. But it's a lot easier to say than it is to prove. And what I mean by that is, if somebody asked you to prove that these apostles actually suffered martyrdom, how would you even do it? How do you know they died as martyrs? As it turns out, the only apostle whose execution the Bible records is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, in Acts 12 too. So where would you even go to look at information about the death of the apostles? Furthermore, critics like Candida Moss have argued that the martyrdom stories we have are historically unreliable and are full of exaggerations at best or completely made up at worst. This is where Sean McDowell's research is so helpful for us. He's taken the time to sift through countless pages of primary documents to collect and then evaluate the martyrdom accounts of the apostles. After rating the historical likelihood of each on an objective scale, he concluded that four of them definitely died for their faith. Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and James, the brother of John. In addition to these four, he argues that two more have a probability greater than 50%, including Thomas and Andrew. Here now is his case for the fate of the apostles as he presented it at the Defend Apologetics Conference last year. Here now is episode 135, The Fate of the Apostles with Sean McDowell. I'm curious, how many of you have heard an argument something like this? Even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged to death, skinned and burned, every last apostle, except possibly John, uh, proclaimed his resurrection until his dying breath, refusing to recant under pressure from the authorities. Therefore, their testimony is trustworthy, and the resurrection is true. Have you heard an argument at least something like this before? Okay? I heard this argument quite a bit growing up in Christian circles, conferences, similar in some of my father's writings. It always made sense to me. Why would the apostles die and refuse to recant if it wasn't true. But about seven years ago, I took a group of students on an apologetics mission trip to Berkeley. We bring in atheist agnostics, actually have them speak to our students and train our students how to defend their faith. And we brought in a fellow, a friend of mine, who, who's a mythicist, doesn't even believe Jesus existed. And one of my students goes, wait a minute, why would the apostles die? if Jesus didn't even exist. And he pushes back and he goes, can you give me any evidence that any of the apostles died as a martyr? My student was kind of hesitant and they like, 
unanimously turn and look at me because I'm their teacher as if I'm supposed to have the answer. I'm like, I don't know. Where's William Lane Craig? I don't know the answer to this. And it spurred a thought in me. I thought, wait a minute. I've heard this argument. Surely somebody's researched this carefully and thought it through. Well, I had begun a PhD program, was planning on writing on theistic evolution, which is a daunting task dealing with science, philosophy, history, etc. And I thought, this would be an interesting subject. So I started to research and look down. I realized that while people had looked and studied individual apostles to greater and lesser degree, nobody had brought together all the evidence and tried to assess from a scholarly perspective how strong and legitimate is this argument. So I've published on that. You're welcome to go get the research. But this morning, we're going to walk through the basic argument and my findings and see if we find it persuasive. But let's see first your knowledge of the apostles. According to tradition, which apostle was crucified upside down? Okay. Killed with spears in India. Thomas, okay. Few less, but still few. Skinned alive. Anyone? All right. How about stoned to death in Jerusalem? This has nothing to do with marijuana, just for the record. Crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Beheaded in Rome. Okay. Died a natural death in Ephesus. Crucified in Hierapolis. So let's see how we did. Crucified upside down in Rome. Tradition is Peter. Killed with spears in India, Thomas. Skinned alive, Bartholomew. Stoned to death in Jerusalem, James. Crucified an X-shaped cross in Greece, Andrew. Beheaded in Rome, Paul. Died a natural death, John. Most of you knew that. Crucified in Hierapolis, Philip. Of course, there's a bunch of other traditions beside this. But let me lay out in a bigger with more details than you need but to frame this and then I'll state in a smaller way exactly what I think the argument of this is most compelling. So here's essentially the way we approach this. The apostles spent between one and a half and three years with Jesus during his public ministry expecting him to proclaim his kingdom on earth. Although disillusioned at his untimely death they became the first witnesses of the risen Jesus and they endured persecution. Many subsequently experienced martyrdom signing their testimony, so to speak, in their own blood. The strength of their conviction, marked by their willingness to die, indicates that they did not fabricate these claims. Rather, without exception, they actually believed Jesus to have risen from the dead. While in and of themselves, these facts prove neither the truth of the resurrection in particular, nor Christianity as a whole. The willingness of the apostles to die doesn't prove that Christianity is true. They do demonstrate the apostles' sincerity of belief, lending credibility to their claims about the veracity of the resurrection, which is fundamental in the case for Christianity. In other words, their willingness to face persecution and martyrdom indicates more than any other conceivable course their sincere conviction that after rising from the dead, Jesus indeed appeared to them. This is one pinnacle of a larger resurrection argument. And all it shows, I believe, is the depth of sincerity of the apostles. 
doesn't show the resurrection is true. It helps us come to the conclusion the resurrection is true, but it alone cannot prove that it's the case. So where would we begin? Some of these first facts where I'm laying kind of the background, I'm going to move through these a little bit quickly because there's other writers that have developed these. But the first thing we kind of need to know is that the apostles actually had a resurrection faith. If they didn't have a resurrection faith, then their deaths would not be meaningful at all. How do we know they actually had a resurrection faith? Well, the first place to begin with, I think, that makes sense is 1 Corinthians. The earliest testimony we have of Christian belief is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Probably written in the mid-50s, so we're somewhere between 20, 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if Gary Habermas and other scholars are right, this creed in particular dates earlier than that and was handed to Paul by the apostles before. For example, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. This is technical language for the passing on of tradition. So essentially, Paul is saying, This was given to me before I wrote this letter, and I'm passing it on to you. So this creed, for a number of other reasons, predates Paul actually writing it down. In fact, by creed, it was kind of a short statement that had style and rhythm that encapsulated the heart of Christian beliefs. And this may be able to be date within three to five years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Now, what does he say? He says, I also see that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he lists the appearances. The earliest account we have of Christian beliefs says Jesus lived, died, buried, rose again and appeared to people. That's the earliest account we have. Now, the second place we could go is the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. So if we want to know the message that the church was built on, doesn't it make sense to go back, Acts 2 forward, and see all the speeches that are given in the book of Acts? What is the message the earliest Christians were actually proclaiming? I'd encourage you to go back and read Acts and pay attention as soon as it gets to a speech by Peter or by Paul and ask, what message exactly are they proclaiming? You know what you'll find? At the heart of it is the resurrection. The apostles were convinced because of the resurrection. So in Acts 2, uh, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan for knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The first sermon an apostle gives. And then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the heart of the message is the resurrection of Jesus. Now we can look at the rest of the scriptures and you find the resurrection central. But then if you go to a generation after, what was interesting to me, I thought, wait a minute. If we want to know the resurrection was central, what are the apostolic fathers who are the disciples' disciples? What message do they preach? And guess what you find? The resurrection is at the heart of what they proclaim. So one example, 1 Clement 42.3. This was probably written in the 90s, still in the first century. Clement writes, When therefore the apostles received his commands and were fully convinced through the... Okay, good. He's with me this morning. Resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, persuaded by the word, they went forth, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God was about to come. 
So from the earliest record we have, through the New Testament and apostolic preaching, into the second generation after, the heart of the faith was consistently that Jesus had appeared to the apostles and others, and they went out and they proclaimed that truth. There is no Christianity without the resurrection until you get probably into the second century and beyond. The earliest records we have consistently had the resurrection at the beginning. That's why most modern scholars will say, I know that's a big jump from the Apostolic Fathers to modern scholars. But even people like James Dunn, leading historical Jesus and New Testament scholars, says it is an undoubted fact. And by the way, anytime you see an academic use a term like undoubted fact, that should jump out to you. Because academics are told in my interview, they're like, sometimes apologists overstate things and they use words like undoubted. They're like, don't do that. If you're in academia, like qualify and nuance everything. So when you see a scholar say it's an undoubted fact, that should be something that jumps out to you like, whoa, this is probably on solid ground or the person has an agenda. He says, it is an undoubted fact that the conviction that God had raised Jesus from the dead and had exalted Jesus to his right hand, transformed Jesus' first disciples and their beliefs about Jesus. So he doesn't say it wasn't their belief they started off, came up with the resurrection. It was a belief that Jesus had resurrected that transformed their lives. So when we talk about the disciples, we have every reason to believe their first belief was in the resurrection. What about the question, were early Christians actually persecuted? In general, was there the milieu that Christians were persecuted? If not, it doesn't mean the apostles didn't die as martyrs, but it helps create a background that makes us more believable and likely. And by the way, in the past three to four years, there has been substantial pushback on this. A scholar by the name of Candida Moss wrote a book called The Myth of Persecution and has argued and gained pretty good traction in popular circles that Christians have totally overstated the persecution motif. And I think she says it's only a handful, like five or six, actually were martyred in the first century and beyond. So this is an increasingly important question. So how do we know early Christians were persecuted? Well, let's consider the record. This Christian movement was based upon the death at the very beginning. We have John the Baptist. We have Jesus who's killed. We have Stephen and we have James early on in the scriptures. James, the son of Zebedee. So just stop and think about this. Jesus was crucified claiming to be the son of God. If you claim to be the son of God, you're saying that Caesar is not. Jesus' message was in opposition to the message of Rome. (laughs) So if you sign up to follow somebody who is a crucified criminal by the state, can you see in principle that you are at least putting your life to a degree in harm's way? John the Baptist, James, Jesus, and Stephen, early on we see that in the biblical account. Well, second, Jesus also taught that his followers would suffer. Consistently taught that his followers would suffer. In fact, the passage that stands out, very interesting, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors. He's speaking to his disciples. 
and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting about this? Who is Jesus immediately sending his disciples out to? Who's he sending them to? Which people group? He was sending them primarily to the Jews. But what does he write in this? To the Gentiles. Notice he says, kings and before governors. It's like he's sending them out on a practice mission, forecasting that in the future they would have a broader mission to Gentiles that would involve kings and they would testify for, before them, be prepared to face persecution. So I think we see clearly Jesus teaching there's going to be persecution. Um, let's take it a step further. I, uh, when I was asking the question, was there persecution in the early church? I read through the entire New Testament and I highlighted or noted every passage that either modeled there being persecution or taught that we should expect it. And to be honest with you, I was stunned at how central a doctrine persecution is to Christianity. And I kind of look back almost ashamed, like, why was I caught off guard by that? Friends, it's in almost every single book in the New Testament except like 3 John. It's a central theme. When it says, when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, how do we, use, how do we interpret that often? Oh, my cross is my neighbor listens to loud music and parks in my parking spot. That's my cross. I bear that. When Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, he said, come, be prepared to be executed just like I was. That's what Jesus taught. He said, you're not signing up for a message that's about making your life great now. You're signing up for a message where you're dying to yourself and you're willing to die for God. I'd encourage you to read the New Testament, read the teachings of Jesus. Mark every single time. It is a consistent, like a drumbeat through the entire New Testament. Passages, we see it in Paul. He writes in Philippians, from jail. We see it in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, of course. Famous hall of faith. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about expecting suffering for the faith. You see it in 1 Peter, which he wrote a book about suffering. And of course, you see it in the book of Revelation. The consistent Christian message is that the apostles and the church suffered and persecuted on behalf of the message that they proclaimed. Now, with that said... When you go outside of the church, what is the evidence for persecution? Well, the first statement is going to come from Tacitus, written in the early 2nd century, during the reign of Nero. So this would have been in probably the early to mid-60s that this happened. There was a huge fire in Rome, and people seemingly were blaming Nero. So he needed a scapegoat to blame for the fire that destroyed a significant amount of Rome. Now, Kendi DeMoss, scholar from Notre Dame, says there were so few Christians, that's why they picked him as a scapegoat. And I stopped, I thought, wait a minute. That doesn't seem to make sense. She argues that Christians were hardly even known at this time. And I thought, if Nero the head Caesar is going to pick a scapegoat, doesn't that mean he's going to have to pick a group that's at least known and people will buy and accept as the scapegoat? 
That seems to me evidence that at least the Christian movement by this stage was substantial enough to get the attention of the empire. Now, what does he write? Tacitus says, therefore, to eliminate this rumor, he falsely, and what was the rumor? That he had set fire to Rome. To falsely produce defendants and inflicted the most extraordinary punishment upon those whom hated for their crimes. Now, let me stop you right now. If you were inventing this, would you describe Christians in that way? Would you? Would you describe your own group as being hated and committing crimes? No. This writing is filled with the kinds of claims that no Christian in his right mind would invent. It says the people called Christians. It's almost like they're this group. They just call them those Christians over there. He says the origin of this name was Christ, whom the procurator Pontius Pilate put to death in the reign of Tiberius. Crushed for a while the deadly superstition. Again, would you describe your movement as a deadly superstition? I notice this doesn't say defend the deadly superstition. Right? Nobody would come. Actually, a few people would come, but most wouldn't come. Burst forth again, not only through the Judea, the source of this evil. Again, they're calling Christianity evil. But even throughout Rome, to which all horrible and shameful things flow from everywhere and are celebrated. Therefore, the first persons arrested were those who confessed. Notice what they're being persecuted for. Like in Peter, for confessing the name Christ. So it is tied to their beliefs. On the information, great multitude was convicted, not so much of the charge of setting fires out of hatred of the human race. Mockeries were added to their deaths. They were wrapped in the skins of wild animals that they might die torn to pieces by dogs, nailed to crosses. They were burned to death to furnish light at night when the day had ended. Nero made his own gardens available for this spectacle and put on circus games, mingling with his people while dressed in a charioteer's uniform or standing in his chariot. As a result, there arose compassion towards those who were guilty. This is what it took for there to be compassion. <laughs> and it describes that uh, the most extraordinary punishment on the grounds that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but for the savagery of one man. Now, if you are looking for individual local accounts of persecution, that doesn't exist. Those records weren't kept. But this is in Rome. If this happens in Rome and people are persecuted for the name of Christ, precedent is set and permission is given for the rest of the empire. This doesn't prove the apostles died as martyrs. But you look at the biblical case, you look at the earliest extra-biblical case that we have, and we consistently have reason to believe, and I don't think any good reason against, that proclaiming the name of Jesus intentionally puts somebody in harm's way. And some people, arguably many people, were persecuted and put to death for their belief in the name of Jesus. Now, let's move on specifically to the evidence for martyrdom so we have time to talk about this. What is the actual evidence the apostles died as martyrs? Well, early on, I found two general statements that talk about the apostles as a whole dying as martyrs. So we can look at individual apostles. Let's start with the group as a whole and ask, is there evidence for them to die as martyrs? This is written by Polycarp, who himself in the mid towards the end of the second century died as a martyr. He's a church father. In his letter to the Philippians, he writes, 
He refers to Paul and the other apostles whom are in the place they deserved with the Lord with whom they also suffered. So he seems to say they suffered, went to the place they deserved in the same manner of Christ he mentions the apostles. Now that's interesting. Who's mentioned here? Paul and the other apostles. See, this raises an interesting question. Who is meant by an apostle? Luke tends to use the apostle almost exclusively for the twelve. Paul uses the apostle very differently. Barnabas was an apostle. He was an apostle. Am I not an apostle, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, have I not seen the risen Lord? So, is Polycarp talking about the twelve? He's talking about the broader sense of the apostles? I think this is helpful, but this isn't going to get us to the twelve dying the way we typically hear, at least evidentially speaking. So this is helpful. The second one, now we jump to the fourth century, to a church father in Syria by the name of Afrahat. What he writes, he says, great and excellent is the martyrdom of Jesus. So he is starting off this passage, we're talking about martyrdom and Jesus. In fact, this is a section on persecution. He says, he surpassed in affliction and confession all who were before or after. And after him was the faithful martyr Stephen, we have an axe, who the Jews stoned. Simon Peter, also Paul, were perfect martyrs. James and John walked in the footsteps of their master Christ. Also others of the apostles thereafter in diverse places confessed and proved true martyrs. Now is this a little bit more helpful in terms of being particular? Sure. It's later we're into the 4th century... Do you notice anything odd about this one? Who does he mention? Stephen? Yeah, he died as a martyr. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he died as a martyr. Who else does he mention? Peter and Paul. Peter was, but Paul wasn't one of the twelve, so his sense of apostle is broader. Who else does he mention? James, Acts 12.2, and John. Was John a martyr? Now, there are some conservative scholars today who believe John was a martyr. We can come back to that if you want to during the question-answer period. I'm not persuaded by it. But this is 4th century. Has Stephen, has Paul? I'm not sure this gets us to the 12. Although it helps to a degree maybe with Peter and Paul and at least the sense that there was an early belief that followers of Jesus, it cost them something. Many were martyred. So these two passages, I think, help frame it, maybe give corroborative support, but certainly aren't going to get us, evidentially speaking, where we want to be to show that they died as martyrs. So let's take a look at the individual apostles. We don't have time to look at all of them. We're going to look at four. And what I do in the book is I lay out a historical probability scale from least probable to most probable because history deals with probabilities. You have to weigh the amount and the quality of the evidence and do your best to make an assessment of it. This is how history works. All right, so let's take a look at Peter. Now, Peter has specifically two references in the first century. One is from the Gospel of John. Now, how many of you listen to unbelievable radio? Can I see your hands? You listen to unbelievable radio? If you like apologetics, you kind of need to listen to unbelievable radio. It's out of the UK. Every week, 
Justin Brierley has somebody on different sides debating issues, and he's a very fair moderator. In June, I was on debating this with a guy, a mythicist, who doubts that Jesus existed. Number one, he was yelling at me, which always makes it interesting and kind of fun. Just kept my cool. And he, I said, John is the source. He goes, John's in the Bible. That doesn't count. I said, yeah, actually it does. This is a first century source. Now, John was written in the 90s. And if Peter was martyred in the 60s, the traditional story is told, this is 30 years after. So this had to be written in a way that would be accepted and believable to people. If they had a story nobody knew about Peter, the head of the apostles, who's always the top of the list, or it contradicted it, there's no way people would have accepted the gospel, John. So I think the fact that this is written within 30 years, when there still would be people around, within itself is testimony. Now, what does Jesus say in 21, 18 through 19? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, when he's come back and appears on the seashore to him. He says, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then in parentheses, the writer of the book says this, he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You know, I think Jesus is saying to Peter, he's saying, Peter, I was the shepherd of this flock. I went and I laid my life down. You now are the head of the flock. You too will lay down your life. Follow me even to your death. Now what's interesting about this is even Bart Ehrman says, it is clear that Peter's being told that he will be executed. He won't die of natural causes. And then his death will be the death of a martyr. Even Bart Ehrman describes him in those terms. Now, how does this passage describe that Peter's going to die? Does it say anything about being upside down? Does it say anything about crucifixion? Well, it says his hands will be stretched out. Most scholars that I read said that's probably a reference to crucifixion. An interesting book came out last year by Larry Hurtado about Peter. And he said one thing we know for sure about crucifixion is somebody was completely stripped naked for humiliation, and so no part of you was protected. But what does it say? Someone will dress you. He argues that he was dressed and burned in the fires of Rome because that's how they would kill people at that time. Exactly how he died is actually incidental. We do know he's told he'd been executed as a leader of the flock. I think that's clear in a first century reference within 30 years of the death of Peter. But we have a second reference. If you go to 1 Clement chapter 5. Now, Clement was a letter written from Rome, and it's written probably in the mid-90s. All right, so if anybody's going to have knowledge of Rome, you would think that Clement would. Here's what he writes. He says, and by the way, the context of this is he's talking about how jealousy causes division and bitterness and ultimately leads to death. That's the context of 1 Clement chapter 5. It says, but to stop giving ancient examples, let us come to those who became athletic contenders in quite recent times. We should consider the noble examples of our own generation. Because of jealousy and envy, the greatest and most upright pillars were persecuted and they struggled in the contest even to death. 
So they were persecuted and they struggled in this even to the point of death. And then he says, we should set our eyes before the good apostles. There's Peter who, because of unjust jealousy, bore up under hardships, not once or twice, but many times. And having thus borne his witness, he went to the place of glory that he deserved. His witness is he went forward. He testified, he went forward. He proclaimed, and he died because of this proclamation. Now, this raises a bunch of questions that we could explore or talk about. But when it comes to Peter, we have two references to his death being persecuted as a flock of the sheep in the first century. Now, there's a bunch of other sources. We won't walk through all of these. I'll list them in the book. I'm happy to send you where to find them. But this is through the second century alone. I think there's 10 sources that indicate that Peter died as a martyr, some with greater and lesser degrees. My conclusion is we're on solid historical ground to believe that Peter died as a martyr. And Bart Ehrman agrees. Bart said it. That settles it. I believe it. <laughs> Let's take a look at the issue of Paul. Now, Paul's a very interesting case. Now, 2 Timothy is a book that critical scholars would say Paul didn't actually write. I believe that he did. There's good evidence to believe that he did. Critical scholars almost unanimously accept that seven letters of Paul, such as Romans and 1 Corinthians, etc., were actually written by him. Timothy is a book that they would say, no, no, it wasn't written by him. Now, here's what's interesting. is obviously Paul's not going to write a book that includes his own death. Somebody else would have had to pen this. But look what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, For I am already being poured out, the last book he wrote, as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. What does it mean to be poured out as a drink offering? He says, my life is being taken from me. I'm being killed, I'm suffering, related to spilling, you know, drinking the cup. He's saying, I am being persecuted, who was, by the way, Paul, what was he told when he first became a prophet? You are going to suffer for my name. So if Paul did write this, what do we have? We have a message towards the end of his life. He knows he's about to die. He's undergoing hardship for the proclamation of the faith. If Paul didn't write this, interestingly enough, as critics claim, then somebody who wasn't Paul had to insert into a writing attributed to Paul that he knew his death was coming. Why? Because the tradition must have been so strong at that point that Paul died as a martyr. Either way, we have good reason to believe, according to this passage, at least one hint that Paul really suffered to the point of death. Now, with that said, we also have for Paul 1 Clement, chapter 4, right before the reference to Peter. The only two that are mentioned by Clement are Peter and by Paul. It says, because of jealousy and strife, Paul pointed the way to the prize for endurance. Seven times he bore change. He was sent into exile and stoned. He served as a herald in both the east and in the west and received the noble reputation for his faith. He taught righteousness to the whole world, came to the limits of the west, bearing his witness before the rulers. And so he was set free from this world and transported up to the holy place, having become the greatest example of endurance. Now, how can you be considered the greatest example of endurance? Think about that. Who really was the greatest example of endurance? Jesus was. 
If he's going to be the greatest solely human example of endurance, is he going to have to follow the example of Jesus to be considered that and actually be martyred? I would argue that yes. Now, there's other sources for Paul. Ignatius, early church fathers, Polycarp. I think we have about eight for Paul that I think we're on solid ground. This is within the first and second century that describe Paul suffering, being persecuted to the point of death and dying as a martyr. Peter and Paul, I think, are on solid ground. What about James, the brother of Jesus? Now notice, James and Paul, neither were a part of the 12, but they both had a vision of the risen Jesus. They both came to believe when they saw Jesus had risen from the grave. What's interesting about James is two things. James is the only early apostle for which we have a secular non-Christian account of his death. That's it. But what's also interesting for James is we also have Gnostic sources, second and third centuries, indicating he was martyred. So for James, we have Christian, secular, and Gnostic sources unanimously agreeing broadly about how he died within the second century. That sounds like a pretty solid case to me. Now, here's the quote about James recorded in Josephus. And by the way, if you've studied Josephus, you know that what's called the Testimonium Flavianum, where he refers to the death, resurrection of Jesus, and obviously his appearance after three days, is a highly contested passage. This passage is not contested, at least by James scholars. Why? Because this is not the kind of passage you would invent if you were a Christian. Jesus is only mentioned in passing. It's really not about Jesus. It's about who's the high priest in Rome. James gets the way he gets executed and then the passage moves on. This is not the kind of passage that would be invented. So it's almost, as far as I could tell, unanimously accepted by James scholars. Josephus says, Festus was now dead and Albinus was but upon the road. So he and Anus assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges. And this is probably the year 62. Brought before them the brother of Jesus who is called Christ. And some others or some of his companions, when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. Now the question, of course, is what did it mean to be breakers of the law? Is some political movement taking place here to get rid of James? Yes, Probably. But I'm not sure we can separate the politics from the religion of what James was proclaiming as the head of the church in Jerusalem at this time. James actively put himself in harm's way in resistance to the religious leadership at that time. When they had the right time, they had him removed and killed. First century secular source to the death of James. And of course, there's others for James. Hegesippus, Clement of Alexandria, Second Apocalypse of James, Pseudo-Clementines, um, and then others beyond that. I think given that it's in a secular source and then shows up through the second century consistently, I think we're on solid historical ground to believe that James, the brother of Jesus, was in fact executed in this way. The last one that I think we're on solid historical ground, so let me pause and give you some context. Out of the 12 disciples and James and Paul, I think there's four for which we can say with confidence we are on solid historical ground. That might be disappointing to you, but it's true. 
I shared this with the pastor. And he goes, you're going to make a liar out of all of us. I said, that's not my goal. <laughs> I'm trying to assess what we know historically. Well, why would James, his execution is explicitly mentioned in Acts. Acts 12, 1 and 2. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James with a sword, which means he was probably beheaded. Now, if you read Keener's commentary on Acts, he said this has the ring of how an execution was written at this time. There's no flowery details that are added to this. When it comes to James, there's no other traditions that I could find even about his death. It's unanimously accepted. It's in the book of Acts, which can be shown to have strong historical reliability. I think we are on solid ground to trust this statement about the death of James. Later on, when you get in the second, third century, you see these kind of stories that show up about how there's an executioner who's so convicted by James, he says, execute me too. Like this basic story, you see these flowery legends added onto it, but the core shows up early and consistently in Acts and beyond. And I think that gives us good reason to believe that this tradition is true. Now, there's four that I think are solid historically. There's two that could arguably be at least better than 50%. Arguably. But I think the evidence is much weaker. One of them is Thomas. Now, Thomas was perhaps the interesting apostle to study because almost all the scholarship is done by Eastern scholars. And from what I could tell, every single Christian from India I ever met is 100% convinced Thomas went there, found the church, and died as a martyr. They don't know why, but they believe it. Their tradition runs deep in southern India related to Thomas. Well, how do we know he was martyred? Well, interestingly, we have records of travel from the Middle East to India in the first century. First thing I needed to know, would it even be possible for somebody like Thomas to get there? Well, for centuries before and centuries after... Do you know roughly the middle to the end of the first century was the ideal time for travel between the Middle East and between places like India and China? There was safety overall, and there was the technology to do it. There's no reason to doubt that Thomas could have made it. In fact, there's a record you can read online. It's actually a business record of exact routes you could take when currents would go from the Middle East down to India, where you could find specific spices. If you go to this port, you'll find this. If you go to this port this time of year, you'll find that. It's all the business travels written in the first century that shows this kind of travel was specifically taking place. So there's no reason to doubt Thomas could have done it. The question is, what's the evidence he did do it? Well, the first record we have is in a book called The Acts of Thomas. Most scholars date it to about 200 to 220. So think about that. We are now at the end of the second to the early third century. So historically speaking, we're at least a century and a half removed from the events. Now, this doesn't mean it didn't happen. Take Alexander the Great. Some of the first biographies we have are three, 400 years removed. So historically speaking, it doesn't mean it's false. But we have to stop and admit that the evidence is getting weaker than for some of the other apostles. We have to concede that. Now, the Acts of Thomas, there are these books, and you might find them interesting to read. They're called the Acts of Peter, the Acts of Paul, Acts of Thomas, the Acts of John, and the Acts of Andrew. 
These show up in the middle of the second century into the third century and beyond. And they're fictional stories that are made up. Number one, to encourage people. They're not telling lies, but also to fill in some of the gaps that we don't have about the apostles. But what's interesting is when it comes to Peter, in the Acts of Peter, there's all these fictional stories that are clearly made up. But the story itself exists within the frame of what we know is actually true about Peter. So when it comes to the Acts of Thomas, he's sold as a slave. He goes to northern India. He's supposed to build a temple. He's given money by a king to build a palace. He doesn't build it. He's about to be put to death. Someone has a dream and says, oh, he built you a palace in heaven. He's saved. He's sent to southern India where he's executed with spears. Now, this story was totally written off as fictional, except the king for which he built the palace was named King Gundafar. In the end of the 1800s, at the turn of the century... A coin was found in northern India, right to the time that the story was allegedly happened, with the name King Gundafar on it. There have been other names and archaeological findings from the book of Thomas that seem to match up with the broader story. Now again, this doesn't mean it's true, but this gives you pause and kind of says, okay, wait a minute, there could be more to this than just a story that was completely made up. Now, the second fact that's interesting is you have this community in India called the St. Thomas Christians of India. Has anyone here been to India and visited this? Have you been? You've seen? Interesting. You've been there too. I would love to go. I've never been there. Now, are they absolutely convinced of the traditions of Thomas if you go to Mylapore or other areas in southern India? They believe it, don't they? In fact, they actually have... I used to read the genealogies. and Actually, I wouldn't read the genealogies. I would skip through them. I'm like, why am I reading the genealogies? You go to groups like India. They don't have written history until roughly the 1500s. They didn't write it down. But they had a sense of history through poems, through stories, through songs. They actually have some written accounts now where they trace back each family line all the way back to the time that Thomas landed in India. Now, why do I find this interesting? You have this book, The Acts of Thomas, and then you have these traditions of of, of the Apostle Thomas coming deeply ingrained in India. I think there might be something to this. In fact, I would probably say it's more probable than not, much weaker than Peter, but historically speaking... I think there is good reason to believe that Thomas may have gone to India and died the way the Acts of Thomas describes. I think there's at least a case that can be made for it. The other apostle that's possible is the apostle of Andrew. Traditionally described that he was crucified on an X. What evidence do we have for Andrew? Number one, we have the book, The Acts of Andrew, which dates to the middle of the second century. Describes him not dying on an X, but being crucified. Then you have a document called Hippolytus on the Twelve, probably not written by Hippolytus, probably from the third century. We have two sources, second century, third century, that Andrew dies as a martyr. No contradictory accounts. Now, when it came to Andrew, I came across this modern Greek journalist who wrote, gosh, if I remember, I think a four or 500 page book. 
He worked in 50 languages. And all he did was track down every single tradition he could find worldwide about Andrew. He said, I don't know if these are true or false, but I'm going to line these traditions up and just see if some kind of consistent story can be told about Andrew. And he lined them up and he goes, for the most part, they kind of fit together, except there was a gap in his chronology and his location. He goes, months later, he hears this obscure story or tradition about Andrew going and living in a cave in Romania. It fit exactly in the chronology of the life of Andrew. Now, I don't know exactly what you do with that, how you can verify it, but that was enough when I read that to stop and go, you know what? A lot of these traditions are invented, I get that, but there might be something to some of these stories as well. There really might be some, and some would argue that's the case for Andrew. What does this tell us? Of the 12 apostles, and then Peter and James at best we have four you can make a solid case for. I think two that you might be able to argue are more probable than not. The rest of the apostles, well, there's no record any of them recanted. We know that. Evidence is late, legend-filled, and contradictory. It is. There's at least five or six ways that Bartholomew died. He was put in a bag and thrown in the ocean. He was beheaded. He was crucified. He was burned alive. And he was skinned. Now that's a pretty miserable life if all those happen to Bartholomew. And frankly, I'm suspicious. Do you know the first record of the skinning of Bartholomew? If you look at old paintings and images of the apostles, typically you'll see Bartholomew without any skin because that's the tradition about how he died. The earliest record of Bartholomew being skinned comes from 500 AD. That doesn't make it false, but can we put any historical confidence in what seems to be legendary and invented for theological reasons, 500 years removed? Frankly, I'm not sure that we can. That's the case that can be made. We just don't know what happened to the rest of them. The historical evidence simply isn't there. Now, you might be thinking, then we'll, we'll take some questions and I'll sum up for us. What about other, quote, martyrs? I was sitting in a bed and breakfast in Alabama and a nun came rolling in, so we had breakfast together. And I was working on my dissertation. She goes, oh, what are you working on? I said, the fate of the apostles. She goes, oh, how interesting. What are you trying to show? I said, well, I'm looking at their sincerity if they died as martyrs. She goes, well, that's not a good argument. Haven't other people died as martyrs? And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. Why is a Catholic nun challenging me when I talk about martyrs? Like you think she would be on the other side. It was, it was this interesting conversation. And I said, you're right. Plenty of other people have died for what they believe is true. So in 9-11, we famously witnessed at least 11 Muslim terrorists die for what they believed. And by the way, I don't really use the term martyr for Muslim terrorists. They're murderers. They weren't dying at the hands of somebody else. They are actively taking other people's lives. So I'm using the term in a more general sense. But here's a difference to keep in mind. Muslim terrorists died for what they received at best, secondhand. The apostles were willing to die for first-hand experiences. 
Muslim terrorists didn't see Muhammad alive, didn't see any miracles. They received a tradition passed down to them 13, 14, 1300 years removed. All their death shows is they believed it. That's it. But they believed something passed on to them. The apostles were all willing to suffer and die. We know some of them did for what they saw as eyewitnesses themselves. So somebody comes running in the back and goes, McDowell, are you really a Christian? And I take one and I go down. None of you would say that's any evidence for Christianity. All you'd say is, oh, he really believed it. That guy had sincere convictions. He believed Christianity is true. It would offer no evidential value whatsoever. But the apostles, who were eyewitnesses, claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. There's no record that any of them recanted. And by the way, would there have been incentive to even invent stories about the apostles recanting? Sure. You better believe some of the critics in the second century, if there were stories about the apostles recanting, would have utilized that to say, look, even the followers of Jesus faded away. Or when there were controversies about what do you do with Christians who failed to go through martyrs' death and they say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus and then want to come back. What do you do? These are debates in the church. If this happened like Matthias, don't you think some people would have said, look, even Matthias did this, but there weren't even stories about this. So the fact that there's no record that any of them recanted, I think is telling that they all at least suffered, were willing to die as martyrs, and we know that some of them did. So here's my conclusion, and we'll have some time for questions. The apostles were all willing to suffer and die because they believed Jesus had risen from the grave. There's no evidence any of them recanted, and we know, in fact, that some of them were martyred. They really believed Jesus had risen from the grave. In fact, what else could they have done to convince us of the strength of their testimony? Friends, they weren't liars. They didn't make the story up. They really believed it was true and were willing to suffer for that conviction. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. If you'd like to get the book from which this talk is based, check out The Fate of the Apostles, Examining the Martyrdom Accounts of the Closest Followers of Jesus, which you can get on Amazon or other bookstores. When I checked it, the used price was $90, and to get it new was 105 So I'm not sure what's going on with that. Maybe McDowell's words are just more valuable than all other authors out there on the internet. I'm not really sure what's going on, but if you want to get it, you can get it there. Or you can uh, ask Sean what's going on with this and follow him on Twitter. You can do that at Sean underscore McDowell. Or find out more about him on his website, seanmcdowell.org. Sean spelled the correct way, S-E-A-N, McDowell, M-C-D-O-W-E-L-L. And I so appreciate him uh, giving permission for me to rebroadcast this talk here on Rest Studio. Thanks, Sean, for that. In addition, I wanted to mention that I've got a bunch of other apologetics resources on Rest Studio from past episodes. So I've got a link in the show notes to past apologetics podcasts, including an entire class that I taught at the Atlanta Bible College on apologetics in 15 sessions. So take, take a look at that if you want to bone up on your apologetics. Also, we have received a number of comments that I wanted to read out. The first comes from Podcast 30, which is from a long time ago, a podcast called Rabbi Jesus, where Yahil Schlipschon 
says, For half a century, I have listened to and responded to missionary involvement to convert Jews to their faith, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, the Hebrew and Aramaic word Moshiach translates into English as messenger. Cyrus of Persia was called in the Tanakh Old Testament the Lord's Moshiach because he reinstalled the autonomy of Judea, Israel to the Jews. He earned the acceptance for being a messenger of God in that sense. As for Mashiach that shall bring all he promised in the last of the current periods of troubles, the job description is laid out. So far, no one has fulfilled it. For a fuller understanding, there are many fond Jewish sites. I like simpletoremember.org for its down-to-earth sharing of his way. Shalom. Thank you so much, Yahil, for writing in. I'm going to have to disagree with you about the definition of the word Mashiach. This is not really the sort of word that's confusing or difficult. We can check any number of Hebrew lexicons to see that this word just means anointed. We, we find it used throughout the Bible to refer to especially kings of Israel, but also the high priest and even certain patriarchs. So, uh, Messiah or Mashiach does not mean messenger. The word for messenger is malach, as in uh, malachi, like Malachi. The book of Malachi means my messenger. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. It's, it seems like you have a very Hebrew name. If I am in error and all these lexicons that I have access to are in error, including my Hebrew teacher that told me uh, in no uncertain terms that Mashiach is the word for anointed, Please cite a source other than just uh, just asserting that Mashiach means messenger instead of Messiah or anointed one. As far as uh, Jesus not having brought the kingdom yet, or he's not yet fulfilled all the prophecies, as far as Jesus not having fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah, I totally agree. He has not fulfilled all the, the, the prophecies, many, in fact, the majority of the prophecies about what the coming Messiah will do, such as Psalm 2 or Isaiah 11. And yet, I still believe that he is going to fulfill those when he returns. In fact, that's the whole purpose of him returning is to, to complete that task. So then the question becomes, well, why in the world do I believe as a Messiah at all? Well, that's because of the evidence for the resurrection. The resurrection identifies Jesus as the one that God has vindicated. God has put a seal upon. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. If God raised him from the dead, then that's vindicating Jesus' self-messianic claim, which was written very clearly on the titulus, a sign above his head on the cross. So you heal. Hey, if you want to, if you want to come back on this, that'd be great. Uh, if anybody else wants to drop a comment, check out podcast 30 rabbi Jesus. It's part of my historical Jesus class number six and, uh, leave a comment there on restitudio.org. Another comment came in from someone, uh, named Vicky who wrote on off script episode 40, Roy Moore, Gay Wedding Cakes, and White Evangelicals, where we responded to a Washington Post article called White Christianity is in Big Trouble, and it's its own biggest threat. And um, Vicky writes an, an extensive comment that I, I don't have time to read out here on the air, but I, I encourage you to check into it. But essentially what she says, I'll just read out a, a little excerpt here, is that essentially what she said is that she felt that we on the panel, the Oscar panel, myself, Dan Fitzsimmons, and Rose Ryder, that we took this article too personally, and we tried too hard to defend Christianity as a whole instead of 
uh, owning up to the sins of Christians. Then she says, if the things written about these evangelicals don't apply to you, your faith, service, worship, and dedication to God, then it's not applicable to your Christianity. We don't have to try and defend or explain their behavior. Let them show their fruit. We have to continue to to share with people the truth about what God has in store for mankind and the kind of world that lies ahead for those that seek to serve God in spirit and truth and put their faith in one and only ruler who will bring about peace and end suffering and injustice for mankind. Uh, Vicki, I really appreciated you writing in. And uh, maybe you're right. Maybe I, I got a little too emotional I'll just speak for myself, not for the other panelists, but um, it's hard to to read an article like that when you have dedicated your life to serving as a pastor and a Bible teacher, and when it's characterizing you and lumping you in with a group of people and making criticisms that aren't true to your experience. So, you know, I, I, was, I was probably a little too emotional, but I felt that I was at least fair-minded in considering what what the author of that article was saying. So, hey, uh, if you haven't listened to this yet, check it out. It's off script episode 40. And uh, add your voice to the mix. We've had a lot of engagement with that particular post. Then, last of all, we had a comment on off script 38, Killing in War, a Christian view of violence, where Kim Magnuson wrote in and said, I enjoyed your comments. As someone who switched from being pro-military to now being pro-Sermon on the Mount, you made some interesting points. I enjoyed ethics professor Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, uh, which I also have, Kim, which certainly gives strong credence for nonviolence. Anyone joining the military is trained to kill. Some are trained in a more sophisticated fashion than others, depending on what their service in the military is comprised. Certainly, Jesus' command, not suggestion, to love thine enemy, pray for those who persecute you, and do good to those who hate you, at least to me, does not give wiggle room to plan or make plans on how to kill your enemy, hate him, or do ill to him, regardless of what he, of what he does. Is it easy? Nope. Nor should it be. But Jesus did say to pick up your cross and follow me. Thanks for your coverage. Stanley Hauerwas and Yoder had some good nonviolent writings. God bless. Thanks for writing that in, Kim. I'm not sure that everyone in the military is trained to kill. I've never been in the military, so I can't speak to that. But uh, I would say that Jesus is unambiguous in his command to love our enemies, as you pointed out here. And this is a teaching that more often than not historically has slipped through the cracks and, uh, and is, is often not heard today. As far as uh, the three authors you recommended, Preston Sprinkle, Stanley Hauerwas, and John Howard Yoder, I totally agree. Their books are, uh, are well worth considering. And if you would like to see more resources on Christian pacifism and the whole subject of violence, you can listen to that episode, Off Script 38, Killing in War, A Christian View of Violence, and also Podcast 15, A Theology of Nonviolence, where I lay out my whole uh, theology there in careful detail. Or stop on over to loveyourenemies.wordpress.com, where we have a whole other website just dedicated to this one issue, where we interact with the main scriptures and handle the common objections and criticisms. So take a look at any of that if you're interested. And hey, look, if you disagree with me, if you think I'm crazy, if you think I'm a soft uh, wuss for believing this, then I, I encourage you to at least hear me out on it because it's not a soft wuss position. 
to actively show love to someone that has hate in their eyes. And I don't think Jesus was a wuss when he did it on the cross. So uh, that's my little two cents about that. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.